Alrighty, welcome back to Brojo Online. Today I'm going to be doing a follow-up from a podcast I did quite a while back on managing manipulation. That one covered a lot of the general principles and uh, turned out to be a pretty popular piece of content. A lot of people resonated with that. So what I thought I'd do is an updated version where I'm going to talk today about some more specific and complicated examples of manipulation. So you can add these to your general principles to become much more masterful around managing it. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. So today we're going to be talking about some more specific uh, methodologies of manipulation. And I'll try to give you some real-life examples that will help you see these more subtle and discrete forms of control uh, as they take place in real life. We're going to be having a look at gaslighting, splitting, what I call bullying banter, possessive flattery, um, contrapreneur sales techniques, what I call articulate explosions, tall poppy syndrome, faked confusion, half-truths, obligation guilt trips, and what I call social disproof. Some of these are commonly known concepts, and others are kind of things I've made up myself. I've spent many, many years being trained in managing manipulation and working with highly manipulative criminal offenders, and also developing my own techniques and theories around this as I did this work for many years. So let's get into it. Let's start with gaslighting. Probably a more familiar term. A lot of you will have heard of it. Long story short, it's essentially somebody making you doubt your own reality. The purpose of doing this is sometimes just to have the upper hand, but mostly it's so that a gap is created in your certainty that somebody else can insert themselves into. If I make you unsure of yourself, then you're much easier to guide and maneuver and instruct because you'll be looking for suggestions and you'll be looking for support to overcome your confusion. So gaslighting is really about provoking confusion. Humans aren't very good at being confused. We don't like it and we seek to solve it as quickly as possible. And this makes us vulnerable to suggestion. If you come across somebody who wants to stop being confused, it's very easy to move them and make them do what you want. Uh, especially in the self-help industry. This is how a lot of salespeople kind of make you uh, buy things, is they'll make you confused about who you are and the right way to live and your pain and your struggles and make you really confused about whether or not you're doing the right thing. And then they say, and here's the right thing to do for 1997 or three easy payments of blah, blah, blah. How this comes across in real life is quite subtle when it's done well. And that is a kind of constant correcting. You might have noticed this with a boss or a partner, a work colleague, friend. Somebody kind of constantly calls you out on the little errors that you make or seem to have made. And they have this kind of intense focus on your little imperfections. It gets to the point where you start to worry about doing things wrong in their presence. That is gaslighting. That's the most actual common form of it. It's not this big thing where you go, no, that never happened. It's much more about just pointing out how often you're wrong so you start to doubt whether or not you're ever right. It might be somebody redoing your work for you. Let's say you clean the dishes at home and then somebody comes and goes, ugh, and they re-clean them. 
someone at work, you know, you, you hand your report over to the boss and they make a big deal about like two grammatical errors and so on. This is the kind of thing where you can never win. You're always a little bit wrong and their way is always the better way of doing it. It just creates an environment of self-doubt. So you'll know that you're being gaslighted essentially where something that you were so sure of suddenly becomes confusing and uncertain in the presence of a particular person and there's a pattern of this. Now this is not the same as being like an arrogant student being schooled by a good teacher because the arrogant person isn't confused. This is about when you're normally pretty sure of the right thing to do or you're trying your best and you're willing to learn and yet you just never seem to be able to quite get it right and it's always something different every time. You you fix one thing and now another thing's wrong and so on. Now you'll notice that you're being gaslighted when this is balanced out with criticism, advice, instruction. But first they make you doubt yourself and then they tell you what you should be doing. And there's this pattern of this. Like they're trying to take over your decision making process for you to change what you think is the right way to live. Now people can do this quite unconsciously. They can do it without deliberately, maliciously wanting to hurt you. It's just some people can't help themselves but try to control others and make them you know, behave in the way they think is right. But it's about creating this dependence. Eventually you start going to them before you even start and go, what's the right way to do this? And now you're under their control. Now they get to tell you how to live and they make their decisions for you. They can even do it indirectly so they can talk you down behind your back so that other people doubt you as well. And other people start becoming hypersensitive to your faults and errors. And so they can actually kind of incorporate an army of manipulators to use against you. We start to become known as the clumsy one or the silly one or the one who never gets it right or whatever. And so it creates a world where you're this confused person who just doesn't seem to get anything right and you can't quite see, actually, you'd be fine if they hadn't done this to you. So one of the key things in terms of dealing with this is as soon as you notice that you're starting to feel often confused in the presence of someone, start fact-checking everything with valid and reliable sources. So if your boss makes a big deal about grammatical errors in your report, and this keeps happening, take that report around to like three or four trusted colleagues or take it home to your family and go, have a read through this. Is this really as bad as he says it is? And just start to get some other perspectives to see how fair or unfair this criticism is. When people start doubting your recollection of events and reality, where they start saying something happened that you don't think happened or whatever, demand evidence. Prove it, you start saying to them. Or you go look for that proof yourself. You know, I just got off a call with a client where her brother accused her of saying some things to him that she doesn't remember saying. But he doesn't provide any evidence. He doesn't give any dates or times that this happens. There's no one to corroborate that this happened. And this guy has a history of making up stuff. So it's far more likely that he's making stuff up than her actually saying the thing. And yet he was able to plant a seed in doubt because he said, you know, about nine months ago you said something. I mean, who remembers what they said nine months ago? And that's a classic tactic for gaslighters is they pick up on a memory that you're very unlikely to be able to doubt. You know, they'll say, you know, well, yesterday after lunch you did this little thing and you're like, fuck, did I do a little thing? Because you're not thinking about little things that you do after lunch. 
and they use that they use that kind of opportunity window of of times where it's very unlikely that you were paying attention to what you did or said and they can kind of like use that shadow of doubt where you're like i don't actually remember very well myself so i don't feel certain they seem very certain so maybe they're right actually they could be lying or they could just be wrong if you see this pattern call it out this is one of the keys I'll keep repeating throughout this podcast, and it's one of the key principles for dealing with manipulation, call it out. Say you're gaslighting me, or say you're making me doubt my reality all the time. It's very uncomfortable. You're the only one who does this to me. You know, I've checked with others, and they say you know that I'm all good, so why do you keep doing this? Are you trying to control me? Constantly calling it out makes it very difficult for it to happen, but When it comes specifically to gaslighting, you want to get down to the facts. Not what you feel, not how certain they seem to be, but evidence. What can be proven, and if it can't be proven, then it didn't happen. This can go the other way, where you remember something and they say that that's not true. So there's two ways. They, They create a memory that you don't have, or they doubt a memory that you do have. This is why I think it's really important to keep a journal. Um, well, actually, it's not the reason I think it's important to journal, but one way to keep a journal is you can actually go back and check things because memory is unreliable. And rather than trying to rely on memory, you can actually keep a historical record of your life. And that way, if anybody ever tries to make you doubt who you are or who you have been, you can go check on it and get a reasonable assurance from your ability to journal honestly that this is an accurate record. So I definitely recommend if you're not journaling already, but you're in, say, a relationship or work situation where you suspect you're being gaslighted, start keeping track. Print out emails and save things. Um, Write down key significant events for the day. This is actually a really important um, process for someone who feels that they're being bullied at work or if someone's trying to do a constructive dismissal. Start keeping a record because later that might actually be evidence in court. Next tactic splitting splitting is what it sounds like you split people apart from each other it's divide and conquer it's about trying to separate people and their versions of reality from each other so that they're easier to maneuver it's really sun Tzu out of war kind of thing where you divide the enemy so that they fight amongst themselves and therefore they don't fight against you this is the kind of thing that happens a lot in big group situations like family and work. You know, there'll be somebody there. Nobody can see who's doing it, but everybody's kind of teamed up against each other and there's all these cliques and uh, kind of factions at war with each other. And nobody can see that hiding away in the corner is the puppet master creating all these splits. You know, gossip is a classic example of everyday splitting. You know, you talk about someone behind their back, they're not there to defend themselves, you don't know what's true or not, you make it sound like that person is somehow against the one you're talking to, and the one you're talking to gets a beef with them, and they spread some more rumors, and the splitting goes on and on. And and you see this with, in a larger scale, with like cancel culture and online bullying, where people try to split and polarize audiences, you know, usually just for clickbait, but they create these divides between people that are really quite arbitrary, you know, making a big deal out of racism to actually stir up more racism or making a big deal about sexism to actually stir up a divide between men and women. This is splitting. 
and it's very effective for control. If you split people and make them fight against each other, it's very easy to move around unseen and get up to all sorts of mischief. That's kind of what the media does. You know, while everybody's at war, they're just counting their advertising dollars with all those clicks, you know, so they're making money while everybody else thinks that somebody else is the enemy. It's really quite dastardly. In smaller settings, you know, groups and workplaces, this is really classic for people with narcissistic personality disorder and sometimes for people with borderline personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder. And they can do it for no particular reason other than just to do it, just to create chaos, just to be the center of things. You know, I used to work with a very severe borderline case, and she would just constantly make calls to different people in my office talking shit about other people. She just wanted us to fight. That didn't actually serve her any real value. Like, she's not going to get any privileges or anything from doing that. She just wanted to see that she could affect people. It kind of made her feel wanted and real. And a lot of people do this. They, you know, you'll, you'll have had a gossipy, backstabbing friend in your life. And you wonder, like, what's the point? Well, the point is just to create the scene, just to be powerful. So it's often done for no real reason, but sometimes it's done very deliberately with a specific goal, like to get a promotion at work or to sell advertising or whatever it is. And for narcissists in particular, this is a technique to remove the prey from the herd, to separate their target from the support of the group. So what a narcissist will do is they'll split one person from everyone. Spread rumors, lies, often look like they're actually trying to play, you know, fear and trying to be an advocate for the person, but at the same time actually separating them away. You know, oh, I know she's always late, but don't take that out on her. Actually, she's not late, but this guy's just started splitting without looking like he's the one doing the splitting. And eventually, this prey is all out on their own, and that's when the narcissist moves in to grab a nice meal, right? I lost track of that analogy. But the idea being is once the person's separated, they're extremely vulnerable, desperate for support, and that's when a manipulative psychopath can swoop in and take control of the person. They've got no one to turn to, and even if the person ends up bullying or abusing them, nobody's going to be there to support them. You'll see this so often in domestic violence cases. The first thing the guy does before he even starts hitting the girl is start separating her from her family and friends so that once he does start the hitting, uh, she's not going to tell anyone. Same with child sex offenders. They try to remove the kid from the group uh, very slowly and carefully and get to the point where the kid doesn't feel comfortable telling anybody anything. So, very, very uh, nasty technique. Very hard to spot. It can happen without you seeing who's doing it. And that's why the approach to this is to see the big war happening and go, you know what, we're not getting along, somebody's causing this, we need to come together to find out who. And whoever's in the fight is almost certainly not the one causing it. Quite often it seems to be the unbiased third party refereeing the thing. Now, for example, if you look at the United States, there's so many rifts and divides culturally at the moment. You know, it's a borderline fucking civil war over there. And you sit back and you go, who's profiting from this? And the answer is really clear. Social media and advertisers. They are cleaning up 
on the constant split between political views, between the genders, between races. There's just a lot of advertising clicks going on because of this. So it's in social media and advertising's best interest to stir this up as much as possible. So while white's angry at black and black's angry at white, neither of them seeing that the true enemy is the media. So whether it's in an office or in a society, there needs to be a coming together where everybody goes, look, we're being split. Where's the source of the split? Who's profiting from the split? Um, and calling it out, establishing the facts, you know. It's like, did you really do that to us? Did you really hurt us in that way? Is this really true? Or if not, well, where did that information come from? And you start following the breadcrumbs of lies back to its source. You'll see, for example, in the States with all the race war stuff going on, like, there's just this constant provocation and like poking of the hornet's nest from various media channels. And you see, look, they're the ones doing the poking. Most white and black people are treating each other very well. That's the truth. That's the facts. Most people, like in the high 80 to 90 percentage region, treat other races with respect and compassion, if not at least, if not true love. At least not being mean to each other. But the media makes it look like it's just a constant battle and anarchy. So the media is the one that's the source of the split. They're the true enemy. If you're in the office and everybody on the accounting department hates everyone in the IT department, it's almost certainly somebody within one of those departments is stirring up shit. So where's the shit? Where did it come from? Where did you first hear that rumor? When did you first hear that accusation? Who's the one who keeps bringing up information that causes us to fight? Find that source, because that's the true enemy. Next one I wanted to bring up is what I call bullying banter. This is essentially bullying disguised as humor. And it's a really, really common form used by quite sort of dominant alpha male type personalities. It gives the impression that one person's just having a laugh and having a good time, and the other person's this overly sensitive, fragile snowflake who's really just having an unreasonably emotional reaction. It's a really, really detrimental and nasty form of manipulation because it's so hard to see to everybody watching it just looks like somebody's taking something personally when they should just relax what they don't see is that the person delivering the banter and the playful insults and so on is actually carefully selecting what they say to wound the other person as deeply as possible and then couching it in humorous terms so that nobody can see that this is what they're doing so this is like your classic high school bully or the classic tradesman who just picks on an apprentice. It looks like jokes and pranks and fun and games, but somebody receiving it is being really badly hurt emotionally and sometimes physically. Because it looks like humor, the person, the victim, is separated. They're labeled as a killjoy or as too emotional or something like that. And nobody sees the truth is that the person delivering this banter is really cruel and deliberately harming another human being for fun. Now, the bullies often either articulate or very quick-witted and has probably like a sense of humor or a nature about them that 
makes it look like they don't really care about anything and they don't take anything seriously. And when they're like this, it's even harder to deal with because if you're all emotional and you try to call them out, they'll always have a quick response and they'll double down on it and you'll just end up sort of digging your own grave. Um, and they never seem bothered, which really makes you doubt whether this is real. You know, it's like, oh, it does seem like they're just having fun and everybody else does this. Like, am I just too sensitive? But you don't see like, hey, they're really picking on something that fucking hurts my feelings. They're not just having a joke about my hairstyle or something I don't care about. They're going for the fucking bullseye. They're going for the heart here. And that's the thing you've got to notice. If somebody is actually going for the things that you're sensitive about, that's not banter. That's cruelty. If somebody really is your friend, they can still tease you and take the piss out of you, but they're not going to go for the topics that hurt your feelings. That's not what a friend does. That's what a fucking bully does. So you've got to know that if you're really distressed about what they're doing, then they're probably doing that on purpose. Now, caveat here. There are some people who are just, I don't know, raised in a bubble or didn't have the right set of friends growing up, and they just have no concept of teasing. They've never had the kind of friends where you take the piss out of each other and have a laugh at each other's expense without it being cruel or personal. And these kinds of people can be too sensitive. So this isn't always bullying. It can actually be banter. But how you'll know the difference is if you ask them to stop and they keep going. So if you are a sensitive person, or you are unused to banter, a respectful person will back off when you let that be known. You know, if you say, look, man, I know you're just having a joke around, but I'm not used to this and it kind of hurts my feelings. Do you mind just backing off a bit? If they keep doing it after that, now you can be absolutely certain you're dealing with a bully. Because no confident, respectful person would keep hurting someone once they realize that that's what they were doing. So if you're ever in doubt, call it out and see how they react. Do you get respect afterwards? Or do they actually seem to relish the fact that it hurts you and they double down on it? Because only a psychopathic bully will do that. Now, calling it out is difficult, but it can be done. Essentially, what you've got to do is keep highlighting the cruelty of what they're doing. And also, call them out for the result that they're trying to get, which is they're showing off. They're trying to, get, they're trying to impress other people. And there's nothing more desperate than being caught trying to impress other people. So, there are certain things you can say to call out how cruel it is, like... Okay, that's actually not funny, bro. You took that one too far. Don't do that again. Or, you know, what you just said was really disrespectful. It wasn't banter to me. That was disrespect. So these are things where you, like, you show that this is hurt and you've had enough. And you do this, if you can, you do it in front of everybody. So everybody can see the whole thing playing out and he can't split you with, like, behind-the-scenes kind of maneuvering. So you call this all out. And then you can also add to that the calling out of him trying to impress people. Like, are you done showing off now? Or looking at the others, like, does he do this to you guys too? Like, is he trying to seek attention, or what is this? And you can kind of show that confusion, like, why is he like this? Is he like this all the time? Is he actually a mean person, or does he just not get, like, how to manage his humor? And you kind of show, like, look, mate, if you're going to do this, I'm going to call you out on it in front of everybody. Now, generally, if you're really not sure, if you're like, man, I am a sensitive person and that person just doesn't seem to realize that they hurt my feelings, take them aside one-to-one -one and say, look, 
I know you're probably just having a laugh, but I'm just not that kind of person. You know, I just don't take it well. So maybe leave me out of it if you can, thanks. And then afterwards, if they keep doing it, you go, okay, now I'm dealing dealing with a bully. Time to move into phase two, which is, you know, calling them out in front of everybody and labeling it for what it is, which is showing off and trying to impress people. If it really does continue, or if it's actually become like one of those toxic group situations, like the mob mentality where people gang up on you, either report it to authorities or just leave. Right? There's no point in staying around that. You don't. If you can get away from it, then get away from it. Uh, so what if they win by getting you out of the place? At least you're out. Uh, but it can actually, you know, say in a workplace scenario, it can count as constructive dismissal. You could make sort of uh, secret audio recordings of it. Or you could at least record what's being said and how it's happening, and then you can make a case for a constructive dismissal or workplace bullying. But generally, whenever I, I see someone subject to any form of manipulation, I say, like, fuck trying to win, just get out. Just get away from it. You know, there's, there's no... Often, even just fighting and trying to win is actually playing the game that they want you to play. They're getting a reaction... They're in your head, you're obsessed with them, and that's what they wanted all along. So sometimes trying to win, even like ethically and legally, is actually a loss. Because the real win is to move on with your life. Alright, next one. Possessive flattery. Not a major one, but I thought I'd throw it out there because I just wanted to cover some of the more sort of trickier and unique ones. I used to come across this one a lot, and I actually done it myself a couple of times. You act protective of someone in order to keep them to yourself. I mean, every guy who's ever been to a nightclub to try and meet a girl has come across the the friend, the cock block. The person who suddenly gets in the way and tries to rescue their friend from you. And some people this is absolutely necessary because there's some real fucking predators in that scene. But for others, you're like, look, we're having a good conversation. I'm a decent guy. What the fuck? I wasn't going to do anything. And this beast just comes snorting and grunting and just dragged her away. Now, guys do this as well. I used to do this. Like, I'd have a girl I have a crush on and I'd always make it out like, you know, guys weren't good enough for her and I'd save her from being hit on and, you know, just kind of hoard her to myself. And that was really manipulative of me. Because the truth was, I wasn't some white knight hero protecting her. I was trying to keep her for myself. I didn't want to share my toys. That's what's really going on when someone's like this. By the way, I should point out, I'm also calling you out in this episode as well as informing you. So if you hear yourself in any of these manipulative styles, you know, observe that you are being manipulative. We all do it. There's no shame in that. But fucking stop it, right? So the possessive flattery is is basically this combination of control and praise they're always telling you that you're too good and that you're amazing and you're awesome and they somehow use this to justify keeping you all to themselves and not sharing you with other people they're kind of slowly cornering and splittering you they're slowly like putting you into a corner splitting you off you know he's not good enough for you and so on she's a bitch you don't need her it's constantly trying to like get you all alone What I would say, my number one strategy for dealing with this, fucking run, okay? You don't need friends like that. You don't need people like that in your life. That is a very unhealthy connection. Just bail on them, okay? If anyone's, like, blocking you from meeting decent people and 
constantly overprotective and so on, just stay away from them. And if it's, say, your own family members or whatever, then just don't spend social time with them. Like, don't bring them out with your friends or when you go dating or whatever. Just don't let them get involved. Because this is not some healthy, protective thing happening. It's possession, and it's very, very fucking unhealthy. Next, the contrapreneur. So I got this off a YouTube channel by Mike Winnett, worth looking up, where he explores mostly people in the business and self-development industry who sell programs and stuff online and courses and seminars you know you know guys like ty lopez and dan Locke and uh, what's that brian brian rose from london real and russell brunson all these guys who are essentially using a formula to sell stuff and disguising that as being sort of authentic and genuine so what i'll talk about just now, it's just some of the classic sales strategies that people are likely to use to manipulate you. Um, some of them very specific, like using prices that end in the number seven, because somebody once came up with the idea that somehow that sells more. I don't believe that's true, but they all seem to believe it. Through to more common things like scarcity, making it sound like this is a limited offer, that there's limited time, that you're going to miss out, and so on. Quite often they use discounts. Discounts are a great form of manipulation. You know, the funniest thing about a discount is you think, well, if you can afford to discount it, then you must be overcharging for it. Because right? you can't discount to the point where it's not profitable. So especially with online evergreen products, like something, say, a recorded video course, which really can never run out. If they're like, for a limited time, this is going for only 197 It usually sells for $1,000 billion. But just today, for three days only, 197 what they're really saying is, this doesn't cost me at all. I can charge anything for it, which is fair enough. They should be able to charge whatever they want for it, because it's up to you whether or not you buy it. But giving you the impression that it's worth a billion dollars, and that this is some low one-time discount, that's bullshit. They can charge whatever they want any time, and that's what they're doing. Bonus stacking, that's another one. It's like, if you sign up today, you also get this that's... And that, and that, and that, and it's all together, it's worth a hundred million trillion dollars. And you get it just for 197 if you sign up today, blah, 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 right? So they stack all this worthless crap on top of the thing that's probably already pretty worthless as if that somehow adds more value, as if this is like they're giving away things for free. When in reality, you know, I, I do online courses and stuff like that. It costs nothing to give them away cost nothing to add them together now there's nothing kind of wrong with doing this i've done some of this stuff myself but just the manipulation of it the idea that this thing is very valuable and very scarce that panic it sets in that anxiety to quickly take action that is a manipulation so i just wanted to throw that one in there you know uh check out mike winnett's channel if you want more information to kind of protect yourself from all these things you know there's lots of other stuff they do like hiring cars to make it look like they're rich or renting out mansions to get photos and even planes all sorts of stuff they do to look really rich and really it's just kind of a weird pyramid scheme where they just sell the idea of making money to other people who will then sell the idea of making money and everybody makes money off the idea of making money and nobody actually has a valuable product or service of any kind so just watch out for that. I've been guilty of committing a few of these sins myself. 
though I will claim innocence, I wasn't trying to be manipulative. I was just trying to learn how to run a fucking business from zero knowledge. And I had to do them before I realized that they felt yuck and they weren't quite right. So I try not to do that stuff anymore, but I have done it in the past. All right, another one. Articulate explosions. So this is the kind of person who's really good at fighting. They can explode emotionally, but they're really good with their words when they do it. And it's really hard to argue with them because they're so dominant and forceful, but also really quite like articulate with their argument and making a lot of sense, or so it seems. So you've got the force of their argument and the sort of quality of the argument, and it makes it very hard to stand up for yourself or kind of feel sure of yourself in the face of this, plus you might be feeling a bit scared. So they might list points, you know, you did this on Tuesday and that on Thursday and this last Friday, and they kind of like stack up this evidence like they're a lawyer in court with this really strong case, you know, and, and quite often they skew the data. So they bring up these evidence points that like create a narrative of, say, you being the bad guy, but overlooks all the other evidence. So they're just kind of cherry picking pieces of evidence. Soon guys like Ben Shapiro is classic for doing this. He seems really articulate and forceful in his arguments with lots of evidence and he cites studies and everything. But he can actually be completely scientifically inaccurate. But he's managed to cherry pick things that fit his narrative and he does it so quickly on the spot that, you know, you can't be like, okay, stop for a second. I'm just going to jump on Google Scholar and check that shit you said because you're in a live debate. And this way, people sort of back down to what seems like a great and articulate argument, but actually he's kind of full of shit a lot of the time, and really unscientific a lot of the time. So there are a lot of people like this. I think he's a great example of like the perfect version of this, of really sort of both angry and forceful, and yet really articulate and smart sounding. But the key here is, I guess, understanding that this is not how confident people argue. Because it usually, and Ben Shapiro is a great example of this, usually you'll see a lack of respect. Ben Shapiro is like classic for interrupting people, talking over them, dismissing their points, or just sort of hammering home an argument without acknowledging that it's been challenged, that kind of thing. There's a kind of like arrogance almost in his approach. And there's a lot of people that argue like this where you just feel like you're being steamrolled by both intelligence and aggression. This is not how confident people, kind, compassionate, interested in the truth people, argue. See, someone who's actually interested in finding the true story and not just interested in winning, they'll be curious. They'll explore counterpoints. They'll question themselves with their own evidence. They won't just throw on a study and say, well, because this study says this, then this is a fact. They're more likely to say, look, this study says this, but I don't know what else there is out there. There's doubt, actually, in a confident person. A confident person knows, you know, in that kind of Socratic sense, that they don't really know anything. So they're always open to being wrong. A guy like Shapiro, for example, you see him argue, and he's basically not open at all to being wrong, ever. And that's a huge warning sign that this isn't actually a debate. This is a form of manipulation. This is an attack designed to control. So you've got to ask yourself, where's the respect? Do I feel like I'm being understood and acknowledged? Does this feel fear and balanced? Are they showing humility about the points that they assert? Are they calm? Are they taking their time? And if the answer to these questions is no, not really, 
then you're probably dealing with manipulation more than you're dealing with a rational debate. So when this happens, it actually helps to ignore the content. And this is the case for anybody getting emotional during an argument. As soon as they start getting emotional, which might just appear to be very forceful, but if someone's interrupting you and sort of like overriding you, you can assume that they're angry, frustrated. Whenever you notice that feelings are coming up, that this isn't just a discussion of facts from two curious people trying to figure out what's true, it's actually now turned into someone's trying to win this, then you can actually quite safely ignore the points being made and focus in on the feelings. You know, calculate. Is this deliberate or is it driven by insecurities? Do they do this with just me or do they do this with everyone? Are they trying to seek the truth or are they trying to defeat me? Because as soon as they're trying to win, then they're not seeking the truth. You can't do both because it eliminates the option of you being right. If I'm arguing with someone and they're right, then if I'm dedicated to the truth, eventually I will succeed, you know. I'll say, you know what, you you win. You're right, I take back what I said. But if someone's unwilling to do that, they're not even going to let that possibility like have a chance of playing out, then they're clearly not dedicated to the truth, they're dedicated to something else. So in this point, I talk about feelings. Why are you getting so angry? Why do you keep interrupting me? I've noticed that you haven't acknowledged anything that I've said. What do you feel about what I've said? And you just keep bringing it back to feelings and kind of emphasize, hey, this has become a conversation about feelings rather than facts. Because that's the truth. Even with someone like Shapiro, who appears to be very rational, you can see with the rapidity with which he speaks and the forcefulness, he's actually getting quite aggressive. All right. Next, we have one of my favorites, tall poppy syndrome. This one's a classic in New Zealand and I've since found out in quite a few other places around the world. It refers to the idea of someone rising up above the herd and getting chopped back down, not allowing anybody to get too far ahead and poke their head out, like a tall poppy standing out in a bed of flowers that are the same height. This one's quite subtle. It can happen in big social environments all the way down to -to one-to-one interactions. It's just a subtle sense of someone placing a weight around your neck to bring you back down to everyone's level. Particularly happens when you show or uh, express intention towards doing something that would make you stand out. Like trying to do something successful, you know, trying to do something different from the norm. An artist amongst the engineers or a uh, rich person amongst poor people or an athlete amongst the obese. It's someone trying to sort of break away and do something good on their own, and they get a sense of discouragement, doubt, lack of support, uh, even outright sabotage from people until they sort of come back down. A great example for me is really quite a nasty example. Uh, I When I first went to start my coaching business, I remember sitting in a lounge with three of my friends, and I told them that I was keen on doing it. And I don't know what I expected. I guess I thought they'd say, oh, cool, yeah, give it a go. But it was the opposite. Three of my good friends just kind of attacked me, talking about how, you know, it was the wrong economy and it was really dangerous and, you know, financially, blah, blah, blah. Like they knew anything, you know, these lifetime employees, like they knew anything about the fucking economy. But there's really like just shit all over it. Interestingly, seven years on, all three of them are now... Uh, business owners so they followed me 
But when I went to tell them about it, there was no support and a lot of discouragement from people who didn't know what they were talking about. I remember feeling quite deflated after that. I'm like, Jesus Christ, like, it was a big deal for me to tell people. I was quite scared of letting it out. And my first time I tell people, I get this really negative reaction. I used to see it a lot when I was in a band. People would, they would go to social events they didn't even like rather than coming to support my band. And I understand it, like, if you don't want to go see a band, but some, some of my good friends wouldn't even come once. Not even once, just to fill a spot in the crowd and make us feel like we weren't total fucking losers. You know, it's, I was in a heavy metal band, and, you know, that's a tough genre to get anywhere, and nobody really gets anywhere. And often the audience size is really pitifully small. So anybody who comes along is deeply appreciated. Some of my good friends would come to every gig, even when they didn't really like the music. They were that supportive. But other friends who didn't even come once. On the other hand, when I played with my covers band, a nice safe thing that everybody likes, then they would all come to that. So they're quite happy to go and support something that's already got lots of social proof and approval, but they wouldn't go support something that's on the fringe. So you might notice, you know, you try to start a business and somebody might not, they don't even like like your posts on Facebook about your business or... They, you know, they don't refer people to you. There's this kind of absence of support. You know, like I know one of my friends started a mechanic business and then some of his friends would still take their car somewhere else, you know, like that kind of thing. The key to understand when this is happening, when you're getting that discouragement or just this kind of void where there's no support or love for the hard thing that you're trying and that you'd like some support with, You're provoking their insecurities. That's the thing you've got to understand. See, when you break away from the herd and do something special with your life, it reminds everybody who's not doing that of how crappy their lives are. It scares them. It scares them for a couple of reasons. One is the vicarious fear that you get watching somebody do something that you think is dangerous. Like, I always cringe when I watch people doing parkour on the edge of, like, skyscraper buildings. There's that kind of fear of, like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're doing that. Oh, it makes me feel sick. But then there's also the fear, like, well, if he can do it and he's not better than me, then I'm a fucking loser who's not doing anything with their life. And I think this is the one that really moves them. When somebody tries to pull you down from doing something good with your life that doesn't hurt them at all, What they're really trying to do is make sure that you can't prove that it can be done. Because if you can, then they have to question their own cowardice and their own lack of kind of purpose in life. You know, I think what my employee friends were doing when they discouraged me from starting a business is they wanted, I guess, validation that their own career choices weren't cowardly or a waste of time. When the truth was, all of them could have started their businesses the same time that I did. Many of them took quite a few more years before they finally did it. And they really, they missed out on many years of being their own boss. But they didn't want me to prove that it could be done because if I could do it, then they could do it, which means they have to actually think about it. The responsibility, the courage required to do all that. People don't want to even go there. So you got to understand, people are just trying to bring you back into the herd because the herd is safe. And they don't like being provoked to think about what more they could be doing with their lives. What I'd say to you is this. There's a very easy way to deal with this situation is move on without them. Either they'll come with you. Like some of my friends kind of stepped up eventually. I've since forgiven them. Or you find new friends. Ones who are already there or ones who agree with your move. 
you know, I didn't have a lot of friends come to see me play in metal gigs, but there are a few guys there already who are pretty cool, who are already into metal, and they'd have no problem. You know, we had guys buying our T-shirts and our CDs just to support us, and we didn't even know them. They didn't even like us that much necessarily, but they just love supporting New Zealand music, you know. So there's those people who don't give a fuck about the tall poppy thing, and you'll find them when you break away from the herd. It's the same, once I started my own business, I started meeting other entrepreneurs. And they're just like, fucking go for it, yeah, fuck yeah. You know, and we'd share ideas and support each other and collaborate and so on. Whereas all my friends are like, nah, I'm just going to stick with my shitty 9 to 5 that I hate and discourage you from doing something better. The little one I want to throw in there is what I call faked confusion. I'm actually quite guilty of this one. It's where you actually understand something, but you pretend that you don't. And it can be done for lots of reasons. I'm not really sure why I do it, but it's one of mine, one of the ones that I catch myself with. Like, Lucy will say something. I know what she means, but then I'll ask her, what do you mean? Now, partly that's also out of respect. Like, I want to be sure that I haven't made an assumption. And that I'm not wrong. But sometimes I do know that I'm right, and then I ask anyway. It's like I'm almost punishing her for not being completely articulate or something. It's really bizarre. I don't know why I do it. I've been trying to stop myself. We had another example. We told uh, her grandmother about our new name for our upcoming daughter. And it's not a classic Czech name, and, and her grandmother's quite traditional, and she really doesn't like things that aren't traditional. So she then started to stutter and stumble trying to say the name as if it was really difficult to say, to kind of like make this point like, well, you can't use that name because nobody in Czech will be able to say it. The name is Chloe, and so far every Czech person I've put to the test has been able to say it just fine. You know, but she kind of put on this dramatic confusion, like, you've hurt me with this, change it. And I think that's what we do. We're trying to show that, like, hey, I'm hurt by however you phrase that or whatever it is it's not exactly the way i like it and you do by showing confusion i guess it's a form actually of gaslighting you say you confuse me to make person doubt themselves and i think that the key approach to dealing with someone doing this is just tell them to stop it just say look you know what i mean stop it stop pretending to be confused you know you can say the name you can stop that now stop with the theater the drama just say it right well you know what i mean so just call it out. I don't know why people do this. I know I myself do it, and I just don't know why. It's not intentional or malicious. It's like a bad habit or something. So I'm definitely not trying to do any damage. I wouldn't mind being called out on it. So, sweetie, as you're editing this, you know, you can call me out on that. Right, a couple more. Half-truths. The best lie is no. If you really want to sell a lie, there's one or two things you can do. You can tell a lie so big that people can't believe you'd possibly have the balls to make that up. And this is like Adolf Hitler's approach. Uh, I'm told he's talked about it in Mein Kampf, where basically you tell such a dramatic, massive lie, he actually called it the big lie or something, uh, that people are like, there's no way a guy would dare to say something so ridiculous in public, so therefore it must be true. Trump does this one a lot. You know, We're going to build a wall and Mexico's going to pay for it. And people are like, well, nobody would ever say something that ridiculous unless it was legit. And so they believe him. But the best liars really know that you tell a lot of truth and then you just fudge some of the details. It's actually a word, fudging, uh, made up by Dan Ariely and his team of um, 
researchers who look into honesty a lot. So fudging is where you just skew the facts a little bit, you just change minor details, and the rest is quite verifiable, or the rest is quite reasonable, obviously truthful, and it kind of carries the lies along with it. You're like, well, the person wouldn't tell me that much truth and then lies, so therefore the whole thing must be true. A classic example that I saw a lot when I'm working in corrections is that guys would tell me really vulnerable details about themselves, and it would give me the impression like this guy's got nothing to hide. Where it's actually he's creating a storm of truth within which he can hide his lies. Like quite a lot of liars will actually say things like, well look, I just like to speak from the hip, you know, I just I just speak my truth and I just try to be as honest as possible, I don't care if it hurts people's feelings. And that in itself is actually a lie. They're not honest, but they give this impression like, look, even though it hurts me, I'm just honest. And it kind of reduces your critical faculties. You think, well, if somebody's going to be that boldly honest, then I might as well believe everything they're saying is accurate. But actually, this person's probably one of the most likely to be lying. Exaggerations, changing little details, skewing the facts, just maneuvering this thing back and forth. They're trying to slip small details through. And they're quite significant ones. They're trying to get away with something. This is usually a very deliberate form of lying, as opposed to kind of you know insecure, unconscious deception. They're trying to get away with something, and they do it by creating a picture of being an honest person so that they'll be given credit and uh, believed. I mean, we even use this in the justice system. Somebody will be going to court, and we bring in character witnesses, don't we? person comes and says, yeah, he's a good guy, he's an honest guy, he's a great guy, so that when he finally talks, the jury thinks, well, if everyone thinks that about him, I'll believe what he says. You talk to any cop, and you're like, I don't believe anything that anybody says. You know, police officers are so classic, they're like the opposite of juries. When a a criminal offender's brought to them, they just don't believe anything the guy says. It's a pretty good approach to take for a police officer, because you wouldn't believe how good some people are at lying, and just how shameless people are with lying. Like I said, you know, Adolf Hitler's big lie, you've got people who will tell the most ridiculous things, totally straight-faced, to the point where you're like, no way is this guy talking this much shit. I've had people tell me lies about myself. You know, you said this, or when we were hanging out of that place, remember, you did the thing. I'm like, well, there's no way someone lied to me about my own behavior that I can remember. And I would actually doubt my own behavior. The thing is, they're actually hiding the lie in the appearance of truth. They look so easy to verify, so easy to you know, catch, that you just doubt the fact that they could actually lie. So watch out for that one. Watch out for the people who talk themselves up as being honest. And maybe I'm guilty of doing that myself, but the people who like kind of give you the impression that they're so honest it hurts them and they don't care, they just do it anyway because they've got so much honor. They're the people probably hiding little packages of lies in in amongst the truth. Not me, though, of course. (laughs) But how are you supposed to know? I could be bullshitting you right now. Next, a little one I just wanted to throw out there just because it bothers me. The obligation guilt trip. And I don't mean this classic guilt trip. But this is the one where you invite someone to your party and they'll say, okay, I'll come. And then when they come, they sort of passive aggressively complain about how they're tired because they had to come to the party and you get this kind of guilt trip about inconveniencing them with your invitation to the party 
but they never say that. These people are like, they make it sound like everything they do for you or with you is this kind of hassle, but at the same time, they kind of throw it off. You know, someone like, I don't know, you, you call someone, they pick up the phone, and then at the end of the conversation, they're like, you know, it was good to talk to you. I mean, I had to delay picking up my kid, but that's okay. It was good to talk to you. Just this little thing where you're like, oh. And, and it kind of gives you the impression that you've hurt them somehow and makes you lose sight of the fact that they make their own fucking decisions. They didn't have to pick up the phone. They didn't have to come to the party. They didn't have to do the thing that they did the way that they did it. So when they do that, don't be fooled into thinking that, you know, you've inconvenienced them. Always give it back to them. Hey, this was your choice. You didn't have to come. Hey, if you don't want to pick up the phone, don't fucking pick it up. Don't give me that passive-aggressive bullshit. You know, you can really call them out quite strongly on it. Like, hey, don't hang that on me. You made your choice. You live with it. I don't know why people do this. I think they just want pity. You know, they want this recognition that they're doing something for you, perhaps. They're like sort of recognition fishing, as I like to think of it. But don't let them get away with it, because it's a really, uh, it can be quite a relationship-destroying little behavior, and they might be losing friends from it. Last but not least, social disproof. So this is my made-up term based on the one social proof, which is another of the manipulative tactics that salespeople use, which is, you're more likely to buy something if it looks like other people love it. So testimonials, videos, people using the thing and looking happy. This is what we call social proof in sales. You make it look like everybody else has already got one and they love it. It really destroys people's critical thinking. People will go with the crowd each and every time. I mean, like you look at what happened with, say, polio treatment. Back in the day, they used to just put people in these horrific leg constraints and just cripple them for life. And the whole medical community was in on that because that's what everyone was doing. That's social proof. And yet the treatment, which was essentially kind of physiotherapy or rudimentary early beginning form of it, created by a sister in the church of all things, uh, that got dismissed for many years because nobody was doing it. Now, social disproof, the term that I made up, is basically when somebody cuts you down in public in a subtle way, but they don't do it in private. So this is quite often a good friend. And in private, they're, you know, supportive, they're encouraging, they're whatever, they're a normal friend. But out in public, they just start sort of cutting you down. They might use a bit of that bullying banter that we talked about before. You know, I I had a good friend and the two of us together were great, but when we're around other people, he'd always tell embarrassing stories about me. You know, I'm just sitting there like, bro, what the fuck? Like, we didn't even talk about the story in private. Now we're in front of, like, a girl that I'm attracted to and you bring this up now? What the fuck? And I'm not really sure what this is exactly. I think it's kind of one-upmanship or jealousy, perhaps, or just a very bizarre way to get attention. Yeah, it's not always malicious. It's not always like someone's trying to ruin your life. But it is really unhealthy, bad behavior that needs to be addressed. So I would start by pulling them aside and just saying, look, dude, this is what you're doing, and it's really not cool if you can do that. And if that doesn't work, then call them out in front of an audience. Like, bro, you always bring up these stories when we're in front of other people. What the fuck is up with that? You know, awkwardness is your friend when it comes to manipulation. See, awkwardness is actually the leverage against you. It's one of the number one sort of factors in being manipulative is you know that other people don't want to feel awkward and they'll do anything to get away from that feeling. 
And so if you create a risk of awkwardness, they'll move away from it. That's how you essentially, at a conceptual level, manipulate someone. You show them that it's heading towards an uncomfortable feeling so that they go in the opposite direction, which is really where you want them to go. So, for example, if I'm gaslighting someone, I'm, I'm constantly showing them a risk of confusion and self-doubt so that they'll move away from it by asking me for advice. You know, I'm showing them an emotion that they don't want to go near. And one of the main emotions that people don't want to go near is awkwardness, you know, social kind of dysfunction, and queasiness and embarrassment. But if you can go into it, that's usually where manipulation goes to die. If you bring up the awkwardness, which is usually what happens when you call it out, especially in an audience, it's really hard for that person to do it again because they go, fuck, this person will make it awkward if I do this again. And they don't want to be awkward as much as you don't, you know. It works for pretty much, if I look back through my list, it works for pretty much all of them. Gaslighting, as we've already spoken about, like, hey, you keep trying to make me feel confused. Stop doing that. That's really awkward. Splitting, it's really awkward to pull everyone together and go, right, someone's trying to split us up. Who is it? That's really awkward. Bullying banter, you know, if you say, hey, dude, you're, like, you're showing off and you're taking this too far. You know, it's going to be awkward if they do it again. And so on, it works for all of these. The sales things like, hey, you're using that scarcity technique or you're just bonus stacking. This is an actual real value. Again, awkwardness. So... If you can embrace awkwardness, if you can go into it when no one else wants to, it makes you almost bulletproof when it comes to manipulation. Because even the most psychopathic psychopaths, they don't feel awkward, but awkwardness is the state where they're being called out and revealed for what they really are, and that's what they don't like. They don't like to be seen. They don't like to be noticed for their true nature. So the more you call it out, the more they'll back off because more than anything, they're self-preserving. They don't want to get caught. So ultimately, this is all about a four-step process. Call it out. Set a boundary. Test the boundary. Those are the first three steps. Now, if somebody is confident and respectful and genuinely loves you, that's the only steps you'll need to take because they will respect the boundary. Yeah, they're not perfect. They might make a few further relapses, but then they'll really get it. If they don't, step four is leave. Get that person out of your life. Uh, Eliminate the threat as much as possible with the resources you have. If someone continues to disrespect you after a boundary has been set, assume that this is now malicious and deliberate, or the person is severely psychologically disordered and therefore still, either way, is a threat to you and yours. So I hope you enjoyed that one. A bit more detail on some of the real-life examples of how manipulation is used. If you've got some ideas of other ones we could talk about, comment below, you know, and let us know of other things that you've seen that you think are quite common. And of course, if you want support to become more assertive and resistant to manipulation, get in touch, dan at brojo.org. I'll see you next time.